Welcome to episode 27 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Jijuboy. Chapter 27. Dr. Cowboy, where are you? Laura, can you come over? I want to talk to you about something. Sure, Laura replies. Judy had met Laura Armstrong, a nurse, when she'd accompanied Laura's sister and Nancy Hill, a mutual friend, to help Laura move from Newfoundland back to Ontario. In the mid-1980s, Judy decides to change the nature of the relationship. Judy gets right to the point as soon as Laura arrives. I've been having trouble with my G-tube. Whenever I need it changed, my only option is to go to Toronto, because I'd rather not have doctors do it. Even Jeej is no good at it. I can get the nurses to change it in Toronto when I go down once a month, but in between I need to have some option other than making a flying trip to Toronto. Sure, Judy, I'll do it. I like it done a certain way, Judy warns. I've never changed one of those before, so I'll do it in whatever way you show me. Judy smiles in relief. Now when she moves improperly, shifts the G-tube, and gets it stuck in the wrong direction, she has someone to help her fix it. She tries to wait as long as possible for her first call to Laura, but finally she succumbs. She arranges for Laura to come over during the day when Cliff is out. Laura finds her in agony. Judy leads her into her bedroom, shuts the door, and removes her top and elasticated pants exposing the red, raw pulp of her skin and the offending G-tube erupting out the middle of the mess and lying on some padding. Laura swallows. Judy lies down on her bed and directs her. Laura unhooks the leg bag from the G-tube, undoes all the tape holding it in place, removes the padding that both protects and secures it in place, grasps its end and pulls. It slides out, blood and pus caking the exterior, Judy's body contracting down the hole. Laura throws the G-tube away and goes to pick up the new one. Leave it, Judy commands. Salt water trickles down her face. She just wants some respite from that thing inside her. Laura sits back as Judy breathes deeply and sinks into the luxury of bearing her troubles. They talk for 15 minutes, Laura every now and then wiping the drops of stomach acid that dribble out the hole and, when Judy grows silent, spilling her own problems into Judy's willing ears. Too soon, though, Judy knows that she must get back to her daily life. Laura unwraps the malacote catheter and looks at it. A line demarks how far to put it in. She starts pushing it into the fistula. Judy yelps. Laura pauses and then continues to feel her way through the track gently, trying not to push it into the fistula wall. She listens to Judy's breathing to know if she's on the right path. Finally, it's all the way in, but Judy whispers to her to pull it out a little bit. She can feel that it's too far into her stomach. Judy lies on her bed, letting the waves of pain subside, continuing to direct as Laura tapes the G-tube in place, dabs cream on the angry skin, puts padding in place, hooks up the leg bag, and straps the bag to her leg. Oh, Lord, Laura prays, please, just once, I'd like to see this person healthy. After ten minutes, Judy sits up, signaling she's ready to get on with her day. 
For a few years, Laura helps Judy endure the torment of her G-tube. Sometimes she has to go over in the evening, but Cliff stays seated in his chair, reading the paper studiously when she does. Judy knits Laura a sweater in gratitude. She seems to know just when Laura needs her gift, as her friend has started to find the job taxing and is feeling unappreciated. When Judy hands her the sweater, Laura bursts into tears, embarrassed. Oh, Lord, how could I have thought this? This woman is dealing with so much, and you're worrying about yourself, and here she's knit you a sweater? In 1989, things explode. Blood joints discharge out of her G-tube, and Jeech puts her on omeprazole, Losec, on December 13th. Use of this experimental drug requires Health Canada permission and mounds of paperwork. He hopes the new drug will counter the acidity of her discharge and heal the ulcers. She later goes on morphine suppositories, and later still on morphine injections. Every night in the waning days of 1990, as he has been taught, Cliff swabs her arm, pinches her skin, and shoots a painkiller in. The year 1990 has been long, Judy thinks as she stares out the window after unhooking herself from her TPN. From the high of the annual Oli conference to the lows of her bones breaking, her G-tube deteriorating, and Jeej moving from TGH to St. Michael's Hospital, despite the fight the H. Penners waged with TGH's administration. It's been a very long year, and it's not over yet. Sun dots the lake with sparkles, and a soft breeze flurries the water. Clouds puff across the September blue sky. It's a bit cool for so early in the month. The glass cuts her off from the warmth of the sun. She cannot see the day's beauty for the pain and nausea. She turns away to make the bed and then goes into the bathroom. Suddenly, she's falling. She hits the electric radiator and ricochets into the towel rack. She's out cold on the ground. The bathroom floor feels hard against her head. She opens her eyes and sees the ceiling. Nausea overwhelms her. She turns and lifts herself to the toilet and vomits. Twice. She hates that. She sits up and feels the back of her head. A small spot there hurts, as does her lower back. At least she did not pee in her pants. She calls Cliff. She walks awkwardly to the car and he helps her in. Susan waves goodbye as they drive past on the way to St. Mike's, Gigi's new place of business. Gigi is much happier at this downtown Toronto Catholic Hospital, where the homeless regularly appear in the emergency ward. The staff members, from the orderlies to the nurses to the physicians, love their work, their patients, and their colleagues, and it shows. Gigi's administrative bosses crow about landing an internationally renowned physician and researcher. He's re-energized with the challenge of creating a nutritional program. There's only one problem. TGH fought him and St. Mike's tooth and nail for the millions of dollars in TPN program funding. TGH won. At the same time as she was cradling the broken elbow and painful ribs, Judy had led the battle to try to keep Jeej at TGH with the TPN program funding. But she and her fellow H. Penners lost. Now every time she's sick, like this morning, she must choose between seeing Jeej, the man who saved her, who knows her best, who's the most qualified to help her, but who works in a hospital where no one else understands TPN and the needs of TPN patients, or going to TGH, where the nurses know her and how best to care for TPN patients, but the system doesn't care. This morning, she chooses Jeej. He ups the dosage of her drug, but the G-tube continues to leak and leak. 
and the drug changes her secretions. To make matters worse, some of her stomach contents have percolated over the years into the blind duodenal loop that Langer had created back in 1970. This percolation has stretched the blind duodenal loop into a sac in which the stomach juices ferment. On top of that, some of the stomach acid is eaten through the scars and tunneled its way through the fibrous tissue in her abdomen, creating a fistula to her rectum. One more track for the juices to exit out of her. It reeks when she sits for long moments on the toilet. She hates it. Cliff tries to cheer her up. He keeps the boat topped up with gas so that he can take her out on the water at a moment's notice while the weather is still warm enough. He sees she's unable to bend because of her raw side and he takes over the dusting, the vacuuming and the laundry. Even on her relatively good days when she insists on washing the clothes and hanging them out to dry, he carries the laundry basket outside for her. He tells her not to go making fancy meals for him, but she continues to buy regular chicken, cheaper than skinless, boneless chicken, and then to skin and debone it for him. She still worries about his health. One morning, one morning, Judy sees quote-unquote coffee grounds secreting out the G-tube. It is coincidental to going on the low sec, but it makes Judy more nervous about taking the drug. The thick brown secretions flecked with black clots of blood plug up her G-tube. Judy calls Marlene. Marlene is still at TGH, but has continued to stay in touch with Jeej about Judy's increasing ordeal. Nevertheless, it's not the same as working side by side every day to help their star patient. Marlene suggests irrigating her G-tube. Judy tries coke. Then in desperation, she tries having Cliff suck it out. When Judy confesses what she'd asked Cliff to do, Marlene is appalled and explains that the vacuum pulls her tiny stomach into the tube ulcerating it in the process, making it worse. Judy stops it. She decides instead to decrease her low set gradually, and for her time, her G-tube becomes less painful. Then the stomach acid starts corroding her skin again. A crater forms and grows. Her wounded flesh weeps. One night, Judy cannot take it anymore. She holds firm against the pain until dinner is over, until Cliff leaves for his nightly run. Judy watches him through the window until she no longer sees his breath puffing in the December air. She dials Marlene's number. With each numeral she dials, her control slips a bit, and her despair rises until sobs pour out of her when she hears Marlene's non-threatening hello. What's wrong, Judy? Marlene asks and waits patiently until Judy can talk, knowing it's the G2. Although they're also having trouble keeping her in metabolic balance, with so many electrolytes being washed out of her stomach, and in a good nutritional state, it's always the G-tube that Judy calls about. If this is what my life is going to be like, I don't want to go on any longer, Judy cries. Marlene respects Judy too much to say something as daft as, it will get better, or, you don't mean it, it's just the pain talking. Instead, she encourages her to talk. I can't live like this, Judy weeps convulsively, as the changes she's endured flash through her mind, her cherished volunteering becoming a thing of the past, her mobility giving way to slings and crutches in a wheelchair, her bones breaking in her elbow and ribs, her fall, her infected hip. She's missed church, and her friends have brought the Bible study to her. I've been through so much, I can't keep going. She's marched, endured, fought, survived, loved, and served for 20 years. She can see the end of her marathon.
Even though she's still not a quitter, she is a realist. She knows death has her firmly in its grip. She, who used to fall asleep as soon as the head would hit the pillow, she cannot sleep for the pain. She had even settled her legal affairs this past fall. She is exhausted. She is worn out. I don't want to live like this, she whispers. Judy stops, depleted from her venting. She grips the receiver as Marlene starts speaking to her with her kind voice, her gentle compassion. Marlene's comfort calms her. Judy looks up and sees Cliff jogging out of the darkness toward the house. She says goodbye quickly, dries her face, and greets her husband with a smile. He knows. Soon after that day, Cliff arrives home from work and walks in on Judy screaming and screaming and screaming in the middle of the living room as blood and mucus and stomach acid stream out her G-tube, soaking the padding and splashing down her hip. Cliff drops his car keys and calls Marlene panicked. Marlene calmly instructs him to double up on her low sec, hoping that will dry up her secretions. Cliff brings Judy her pills, tells her to swallow them, and soothes her. On December 19th, he drives her to St. Mike's ER, but she manages to get released two days later. She just wants to get through one more Christmas at home with her family. She wants just one more chance to watch Cliff put the turkey in the oven, according to the instructions she gives him from her chair. One more chance to savor the scent of the cake that Susan brings over for the family. One more chance to watch her grandkids open their presents. One more chance for her smiles to return. Then, she knows, she will have to go back in. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Jijiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under instrumental music for film and video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.